right, here we are, 845. How you doing, good? That's great, excellent. Listen, don't be snooping around at No One Follow Library while I'm preaching, all right? I, you know, that web address was there. Some of you are on your phone there. Don't do that. We know who's there during the service and you're in trouble, all right? Pay attention. Um, uh, worship hack, real quick. That, when we sing, he won't, you can sing, you won't. Do you ever do that? Like sing to God instead of, he won't fail me now. Maybe some of you are like, you know what? I need God not to fail me now, so you won't fail me now. You can sing like that. It's not illegal. You will not get in trouble for that. So I just thought I'd share that because I always sing that. You won't. He's here. God is among us. And so sing that way, all right? Um, Matthew 6, welcome in. If you're new, we're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead and turn Matthew chapter 6. Going to be some verses on the screen, but I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, Alyssa, who you would love to meet at the welcome space anyway, will have a Bible for you if you don't have one. So stop by there, all right? Matthew chapter 6. Some review, it all began with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Remember that way back last fall? Beatitudes from the Latin word for blessing. One writer says in the Beatitudes there in, in Matthew 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he doesn't, pronounce, he doesn't pronounce blessing on those who will obey his word or do the will of the Father. He doesn't say, blessed are you because you obey. Obedience is important, this writer says, but he blesses those who stand, listen, like, like we did as we worshiped, empty-handed, desperate, hungering and thirsting for a right relationship with God and with others. Beatitudes tell us that's who he blesses. And then, I like how this writer puts it, accompanying that blessing comes God's response with the enablement to live accordingly. God says, hunger and thirst with righteousness. Um, meekness, come, broken. God, I need you. Without you, I'm nothing. God meets us in that response of faith with the enablement to live accordingly. The conduct, therefore, demanded in the sermon, I like this, the conduct demanded in the Sermon on the Mount becomes indicative of one's relationship with the Father. So this becomes a mirror we hold up and say, hey, Christ's righteousness covered and took away my sin, but my righteousness must exceed a righteousness that's self-righteous and unrighteous. Am I living that way? The sermon combines both of those things. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. I love this little verse. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. One commentary notes, if the call to holiness seems impossible, because sometimes when we see the demands of the Sermon on the Mount, it feels overwhelming. But a word of confidence, the call here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is commanded by God to, by the God who chose them, who chose us and is faithful. He will make us holy. He'll be faithful to his covenant promises. And so, man, we have those promises and those responsibilities meeting in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that's important by way of review. And for those who maybe you're just getting there to Matthew 6, all right? Moving into chapter 6, we said this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, when we get to Matthew 6, Jesus uses three examples of Jewish pious acts. So in chapter 6, Jesus goes from the interior to the exterior. Like, hey, is, is your righteousness real? Not just in the interior life, lust anger, greed, but is it real in your exterior life, the things you do? And Jesus used three examples of pious acts in the Jewish culture of that day. First week was what? I thought so. Giving. Second week, last week was? Now you're with me, excellent. Today, I'm gonna be fasting, all right? Those are the three pious acts. And he, he brings these up to make one point. Obedience in public does not guarantee a reward from God. We said this two weeks ago. Obedience in public 
Oh, look, they're giving. Oh, look, they're praying. Oh, look, they're fasting. Obedience publicly doesn't guarantee a reward from God because one's motive is more, listen, one's motive is more important than one's outward activity. And we know that. We know that intellectually, but man, has that really gotten down in us that God cares about our motives, cares about the conduct. So giving, praying, and now fasting were different in the ancient culture, but today they very much fit what we would call spiritual disciplines in the contemporary culture, all right? I'm gonna throw a term at you, spiritual disciplines. I have this on the screen, I believe. This is from a guy named Donald Whitney. He's written a lot of good things on spiritual disciplines. Here's how he defines a spiritual discipline. Spiritual disciplines are those practices that are uh, found in scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's important. Listen, if you don't know Jesus and, and you, you have a Bible, it begins with the relationship with Jesus. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins and that by confessing our sin to him and saying, Jesus, come take over my life. I wanna make you the Lord of my life. That establishes a relationship with God and out of that, these habits grow. So some people are like, oh, you just read your Bible because it's a good book. Well, that's not the same. Spiritual disciplines, this is important. They grow out of the gospel. Don Whitney says, they are habits of devotion and habits of experiential Christianity that have been practiced by God's people since biblical times. And some of you that are awake are like, well, what are the spiritual disciplines? I'm glad you asked. There's 10 of them. Let me, listen, these are not inspired. Donald Whitney came up with these. If you don't like them, take it up with him, all right? But he gives us 10 that I think are good. I'm not gonna read them, but you can kind of look at them there. He says, he wrote a book called 10 Spiritual Disciplines. And these are kind of the 10 that he's developed and says we should develop in our lives as these habits that we're talking about. So today, as we look at the last pious act that Jesus talks about from, from giving to praying to now fasting, we wanna make sense of spiritual disciplines. I want us to consider three priorities as it relates to the third pious act, which is fasting. And some of us know a lot about fasting because of prepare, but that's what we wanna talk about today. And these, what we're gonna talk about today, very much like, and in some cases, identical to the priorities we were given in giving, when we talked about giving and praying. And we said this, the first part of Matthew chapter six, from verse one through basically verse 18, where we're gonna end today, they're, they're the same language. How do we make sense of spiritual discipline? That's what we want to do. Matthew 6. You ready to read the Bible? I am. Matthew 6, 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. Three priorities as it relates to fasting that we wanna talk about, all right? Notice before we get to those, there's an expectation in verse two to give. Do you see that? So whenever you give, we talk about this. Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples here, he expects they will be giving. Uh, look at verse five. There's an expectation they will pray. Whenever you pray, not if you pray. When, so last week, Jesus says, I expect you'll be giving. I expect you'll be praying. Does Jesus expect us to be fasting? The answer is, a lot of us are like, I hope not. The answer is yes, I'm sorry. The answer is yes. In verse 10, or verse 16, look what he says, whenever you fast. So, man, I've been struggling with that. 
because I don't fast very much. But listen, Jesus is assuming we will fast. I like what one writer said. This is David Mathis. He said, Jesus doesn't say that we must. So some of you are like, Phew. Jesus doesn't say that we must, but he says we will. There will be times in our lives when we set, a, set aside the commitments to things that nourish us like food or like something else to get more of God and to get something from God that, that we desire that's good. There, there should be seasons in our life like that. And very often it'll reveal itself in physical fasting, which at Keystone Church we have entered into. Um, Jesus doesn't say we must, but he says we will. In that sense, fasting is not, I like this, listen. Fasting is not an obligation, it's an opportunity. Isn't that good? Fasting, fasting is, an obliga- is not an obligation, it's an opportunity, and it's one that's too powerful to miss. I could say that about all three of these things we talked about. Giving, uh, giving is an opportunity, it's not an obligation. It, Jesus expects it. Uh, praying, not an obligation. Oh, I gotta pray again. It's an opportunity. Fasting, same way. So, so Jesus expects this. All right, now, so three priorities that come with it. Number one is this. Jesus gives us important cautions, like he's done every other time. He always starts with, here's how you don't do it. Here's how, uh, verses, verses one through four, here's how not to give. Verses five through 15, here's how not to pray. That's how he starts. Today, 16, here's how not to fast. Jesus answers the question of how not, how not to. Um, negative, here's what you shouldn't do. Well, what were the Pharisees of his day doing when they fast? Here's what I like to say. They assumed gloom and they cared about getting attention. What were they doing? What were, the, what were the, those of Jesus' day who were self-righteous hypocrites, how were they doing it wrong with fasting? Well, they assumed gloom. See that? They disfigured their face and it was obvious they were fasting. They assumed gloom and they did it to get attention. Jesus says, that's not why you fast. Quickly, there's some background with, with fasting in the Old Testament. We have several examples. Bible scholars show us this. This is Nehemiah 9.1. We're gonna take a quick fasting journey, okay? This is when people in the Old Testament abstained from food while they repented from sin. So Nehemiah 9.1, on the 24th day of the month, the Israelites assembled, they were fasting. This is way back in the Old Testament, wearing sackcloth. That's the... Sackcloth is the clothing of mourning. You can, you can see it on the internet. They've got like a real, I don't know if it's a real picture from way back, but you know what I mean. You disfigure yourself. Sackcloth. Uh, they were wearing fasting, wearing sackcloth, and put dust on their heads. We don't find that surprising. One writer says, because mandatory fasting was prescribed in the Old Testament in conjunction with the confession of sin on the day of, the, on the day of atonement a high holy day for the Jewish people. I'll prove it, Leviticus 16, 29. Any of you in Leviticus yet in your Bible reading for the year? <laughs> Keep going, don't quit, all right? That's aside. 16, 29 of Leviticus. This is to be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you are to, CSB says, practice self-denial. That includes fasting. Practice self-denial. Don't do any work. Both the native and the alien who reside among you That phrase, practice self-denial, variously it's translated, deny yourself, humble yourself, afflict yourself. One translation said, afflict your soul. I don't know about you, but that's what fasting feels like for me. I'm afflicting my soul. God says, day of atonement, do it. Because it reminds you of your sinfulness. Reminds you of your sinfulness. So fasting, man, it was 
It goes way back. Various forms of self-denial there in Leviticus 16. Not limited to, but certainly including fasting. Psalm 35, 13. Psalmist says, when they were sick, talking about his enemies. When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. So fast forward then into the New Testament. Scholars tell us with regard to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the people that Jesus is targeting in the Sermon on the Mount who were hypocritical. They're doing it. They're assuming gloom they get up from. They just figure themselves like, oh, he's a mess. He must be fasting. Yes, I am fasting. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, down with that. Here's a caution. Don't do it like that. Assume gloom and all they cared about was getting attention. The first century Jews they regarded fasting as a mark of general piety, not just repentance. So in the Old Testament, it was, it was really established for repentance. But we move into the New Testament, and these religious leaders, again, who were hypocrites, it was, it was a piety thing. It was like to get up in front, and it was like, you could tell, oh, they're fasting. Got the sackcloth on, I see. All disfigured. But their reasoning was terrible. It was just to get attention. Soon gloom, getting attention. I wonder... In what ways do we assume things and hope to get things from what we do with things like spiritual disciplines? What do we try to get out of it? I thought of it like this, assumed blank and getting blank. When, when you go to God, what, 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 are you, what are you hoping people assume about you? Like, oh man, they really know the Bible. Did you hear them pray? They really know how to pray. What are you trying to get from God? Assumed gloom. Getting attention. I wonder what that is for you. I wonder what that is for me when we get it wrong with spiritual disciplines. One writer says, almost anything that's supposed to serve as an outward sign of an inward attitude can be cheapened by hypocritical piety. Isn't that true? We crave attention. I was talking to somebody about this this week and they said, it's like the person, they're on social media, they're like, hey, just so you guys have Facebook, whatever. Hey, just saying, I'm gonna be getting off of here for a couple weeks. It's like, really? Who cares? I mean, maybe we do. But a lot of times it's just like, why are you telling us that? Like, you're gonna get mad about something and get back on before you say anyway. But it's almost like, look at me, I'm, you're gonna miss me, all five followers, see ya. Why? Because we're wired for that. We're wired for attention. What do, what do we assume and what do we hope to get? Another writer said it this way, no voluntary act of spiritual discipline is ever to become an occasion for self-promotion. I like what one writer said, though, there's a difference between being seen fasting and fasting to be seen. So like, when you come in next year for repair, you're like, oh, Fry said I can't let anybody know I'm fasting, so I'm not gonna say a word. If my stomach, if my stomach grumbles, I'll leave the building. That's not what we mean. Like, when we come in for repair and we do fasting and we're going without food, we all know we're hungry. It's not, nothing wrong with that. The question is the motive, right? Jesus said, here's an important caution. You're, you're assuming that, oh, I've got to just figure myself and make sure people know. Any good thing can be turned into a bad thing when our motives and our attitudes aren't right. Uh, I've been, I have talked to my wife about this for some time. Think about it like this. Here's what I want to say when it comes to this. When, when we assume things and we crave attention... Listen to me, Keystone. Are you bigger? One writer says, he asked this question when it comes to this, getting attention. Are you a person who's bigger on, I don't have this on the screen, but it's easy to remember. Are you bigger on the inside or bigger on the outside? 
Here's what he says. The most attractive quality in a leader, I find, is when you discover that their inside is bigger than their outside. This really hits Christians a lot, Christian pastors a lot, because, man, a lot of them, we need to get our attitude in check. So I'm picking on my brethren. He, he says this, Christian leaders whose books, sermons, albums, organizations are far more impressive, are often far more impressive than the per- Far more impressive than the person you meet when you look behind the curtain. Well, that's true. There's nothing wrong with money or popularity or a big church or a social media following, but when they work in combination with each other, which they often do, I'm preaching all you pastors out there. I just talked to the screen. Um, When they work in combination with each other, which they often do, they have the potential to inflate a person's outside while simultaneously diminishing their inside. Their stage presence better than their prayer life. Their preaching's better than their parenting. They give the impression of reading the Bible and sharing the gospel more than they actually do those things when you get to know them. So when you see someone whose inside is bigger than their outside, it is immensely refreshing. You can hear it in the prayers. You can see it in their homes. You can tell by hearing the jokes they make or decide not to make, the controversies they avoid, the judgments they pass or don't, the way they interact with their families, the things they spend their money on, the way they treat people from whom they have nothing to gain. You ever meet somebody who's bigger on the outside than they are on the inside and you're like, wow, that was a disappointment. There's been times in my life I know where I'm bigger on the outside than I am on the inside. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Are you, are you a person? Mom and dad, are you teaching your kids? Am I teaching my kids, how, my grandkids now, how to be bigger on the inside than they are on the outside? That's, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. That's very convicting to me, and that's an easy phrase to remember. I wanna be a man of God who is bigger on the inside than I'm on the outside. Important caution. Quickly, I thought about it like this. Here's what Jesus says. You have the attention of many, but the audience of one. The attention of many, but the audience of one. I remember when I was a kid and played sports, I went to a Christian school and the coach would be like, audience of one, right? And I'd be like, have you seen me play basketball? I don't think God even wants to watch. But <laughs> that's a great principle. Listen, you, we, can't, we can't do things to please God. We can't practice spiritual disciplines and not... Get attention. But is that what you're after? Is that what I'm after? Jesus says when it comes to this thing of fasting, it was a pious act, and these Pharisees purposely get up in the morning and said, how can I look as bad as possible? So the people say, are you fasting? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. Bigger on the outside than they were on the inside. We can't get the, the attention of many people. But, but listen, when we, when we put our head on a pillow at night, and we've, we've strived to, to maintain and build that relationship with Jesus. Is it for him? Is the audience one? Attention to many, that's not a problem. People are going to notice. They should. But it's like, you know what? It, they're obviously about Jesus with this. Attention to many, audience one. Important cautions, all right? Proper attitude. That's the second thing. Jesus says there are some important cautions. And we've had those cautions the whole way along. That's always what Jesus starts with. Second thing he goes to is some important cautions. 
17, first word of verse 17 is what? But, but when you, when you fast, all right, here's how to do it now. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face. Those, you don't have to put oil on your head. You can, that might be weird. Obviously a custom of the day. Proper attitude. In contrast to what not to do, Jesus now describes how to fast. Similar to the way he did in verse three with giving. Similar to the way he did in verse six with praying. Here again, two things, humility and longing. Humility, what does it look like to fast? What, what should mark what we do in fasting? And for those who are like, hey, time out, Fry. I don't even know what fasting is. I think a lot of us do, but just fasting primarily is stepping away primarily from food. For those of us who are part of Prepare, our three-day event at the beginning of the year, we step away for three days, some of us for longer, from food, physically food. We don't eat for three days. And it's overwhelming for some of us. There's all kinds of fast, though. There's all kinds of stepping away from something to say, I'm so dependent on this that it's kind of, it's more important than God. And so I want to step away from it to say, God, it's, I, I want more of you in humility. I'm dependent on you. And secondly, it's this longing for his presence through something you want him to do. Maybe you're fasting because you want some kind of breakthrough in your family. Or it's an attitude of your life where I've got to change this thing. And so it's, I'm, I'm getting away from food and God, I'm just going to seek you. Do you have that in your life? Do you have places to go that humble you and that foster longing in your life? Jesus says, here's some cautions. Don't do it because you're assuming things and you want to get things that are hypocritical. Rather, we give, we pray, we fast with a proper attitude, which is humility and longing. Uh, I'm reading through the Bible this year. I started in Mark. I was struck by the first six chapters in Mark. Two things Jesus is always doing. He's going to lonely places and he's getting in boats. Isn't that interesting? Like 13 times from Mark 1 to Mark 6. Don't hold me to that. But it's a lot. It's like Jesus got in a boat. Jesus got out of a boat. Jesus got back. I love boats, so I'm into that. Like, yes. But constantly in and out of boats. And at least three times it says, he went to a lonely place. Here's, here's what boats are. They get you to where you're going. And some of us, we need boats in our life. It's like, you need to get in something, get going. Like, Jesus had a mission, and to get to the other side of the lake, it's like he got in a boat. Hey, can I use your boat? Yeah, I'm going to the other side of the lake. I got something I got to do. Some of us, some of us right here, it's like, get in your boat and go do something. Jesus did. But then it says he pulled back and he went to lonely places. And you know what? That was to get away. And so fasting, fasting is going to a lonely place. Some of you, you're, all you're doing is getting in the boat. Row your boat to shore and get out and go to a lonely place. That's what fasting is. Fasting is a place of humility and longing. Uh, somebody, somebody put this verse on the internet last week and I was struck by it without comment. This is Matthew 13, 1. I do have it. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. I, I don't know why I love that verse, but I, that's my life verse now. I, you like to go sit by the sea? I mean, we don't have the sea in Iowa, I know. Sailor, Matt went out. Matt went out and sat by Sailorville Lake. And the sea there, the sea is like the lake, the Sea of Galilee, right? What a great verse. The God man, sometimes it's like, you know what? 
this house is noisy. I just want to go out and I want to sit by the water. And please don't come bug me. In the next verse, people like come and bug him because he's Jesus. I love that verse though. Sometimes you know what you need to do? Leave your house and go sit by the sea and just humbly long for Jesus. You got lonely places? We need lonely places. We need boats to get going, but we need lonely places to get away. And that's, where, that's what fasting is. It's a lonely place. Sometimes it's a hard place, but it's a place where you'll meet Jesus like never before, right? We've experienced this, those of us who have taken part in it. Every time your stomach growls, you gotta do something with that. Man, I'm hungry, I've eaten for two days. And hopefully God turns that into, man, I'm hungry. You know why? Because I can't survive without food. But more than that, I, I long for Jesus. I'm, I'm, if I keep doing this, I'm gonna die, and you will. And it reminds you, you are so dependent, humbly. And so hopefully God turns that into a desire for him, a longing for him. I thought of it like this. Fasting is one of those lonely places. I think I have this on the screen. Fasting is one of the lonely places where in humility, hunger awakens my longing for the purposes of God. I, I think that's a good, I mean, I came up with that myself, so I'm getting carried away here. But I like that statement. Fasting is one of the lonely places where in humility, hunger awakens my longing for the purposes of God. You have, you have lonely places? A lot of you got boats. Back and forth across the lake, going, going, going. Some of us need to get out of the boat. It makes sense to these spiritual disciplines to say, I gotta get alone with God. In fact, I gotta turn my back on McDonald's for a week. It's hard. No Starbucks for a day. I don't know. Uh, so Jesus says there's important cautions. There's a proper attitude. Fasting is one of the lonely places where in humility, hunger awakens my longing for the purposes of God. There's a promised reward. I've talked to a lot of you about reward here. It's beautiful. 18, when you, when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face. In other words, don't do it for show. So that you want results, you got them. So that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Promise reward moves from, here it is, horizontal priorities, but vertical passion. That's, that's what I would say when it comes to the promised reward. The promised reward of fasting is not just horizontal priorities, but vertical passion. Listen, I, I heard a writer say it like this. A lot of us at the dinner table, we teach our, I was with my grandson yesterday, and we prayed, Chick, prayed over Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Easy. And uh, I said to my grandson, you wanna pray? And he didn't. Kids ever do that? Like, oh, no, I've lost them. But he said, I don't want to pray. You know why we do that, though, with our kids? I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want them to learn to pray. Is that a good motive, yes or no? Yes! But sometimes, sometimes the only reason we come away is because we want something horizontal, like God, fix my kid, or God, change this job, or take this habit away, or fix that relationship. Those are all good Listen, I want my grandson to learn to pray. I do. But don't get stuck on just horizontal priorities. Have a passion for 
for what is vertical between you and God. Ultimately, it is to get those things that we long for. But penultimately, ultimately, it is to get to God. So listen, fasting's great if there is some breakthrough you want in your life. Go for it. Abstain from food. Step away from something. But friends, search your heart and say, am I really doing this because of a vertical passion to get God? Promise, the promised reward is to get God, ultimately. And here's a side product of that. My little grandson's gonna be praying. That's awesome. But I want him to pray because I want him to get God. And I want him to pray because I want to get God. See how it works? It's important. Have those horizontal priorities. But don't lose sight of vertical passion. Here's the thing that's interesting about this. Here's why I say this. Jesus expects his disciples to fast until he doesn't expect them to fast. And then he defends them. Check this out. This is later. John, John the Baptist, we gotta go fast. John the Baptist's disciples came to him, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast? Good question, because I thought, because you're like, hey, I was paying attention earlier, Fry. I thought you said Jesus expects us to fast. Well, John's disciples come and say, hey, how come everyone else fasts but your disciples don't? Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is here? If you're like, I think that he's trying to say there that he's there, you're right. The time will come when, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The answer is no. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Know why? Because the groom isn't there. I wish the groom was here. I wish it so much that I'll set everything aside and desire the groom. Jesus says, that's the time to fast. I'm here, I'm with them. That's the time to fast. No one patches an old garment. I'm not gonna read the rest of that. We don't have time. It's important, but not, not now. Listen, here's what Jesus is saying. I think I have this on the screen. We feast in the presence of race, relationship and we fast in the absence of relationship. The promised reward of spiritual disciplines, making sense of them is sure it's horizontal priorities, but it's a vertical passion. And Jesus says to, to those people who came to him, listen, you know why my disciples aren't fasting? I'm with them. The bride is here. It's the wedding party. We're all here and we're celebrating. We're feasting. But I'm gonna be gone someday. And when I'm gone, then we'll fast. You know why? Because we want the presence of Jesus. May you come here and prepare. It is all out worship. Open the word of God. Preach to us. God, we want you. We long for you. Feasting. Fasting. Feasting in the presence of relationship. Jesus says, I'm there, fasting in the absence of relationship. I don't know about you if you're, if you're married here, but spouse that travels, my, my wife travels for work. We have people in our connection group that travel. And sometimes the end of connection group, hey, what are prayers? Well, so-and-so, their spouse is traveling this week. And there's kind of this collective like, oh, everyone feels sorry. It's like, oh, only gonna be gone a couple days. I'll make it, pray for me. You know why? Because like when my wife travels, she's not there. I'm fasting. Not literally. <laughs> but I miss her. You're like, what do you miss, Fry? I miss a lot of things. I miss relationship, though. When she, come back, when she comes back, I can tell you countless things. But it's all wrapped up in her presence. And 
We had, a, we had a dude this week, I'm not sure if he's here in our connection group, but he was all down in Louisiana, all over the place. I think he's gone for a week. Man, when he gets back, his wife's gonna be so excited to see him. And you're like, why? Because of relationship. Because when he's gone, it's just not the same. When my wife's gone, it's not the same. When she's back, everything's, all right, this is right. How much more? Jesus, right? One writer says, when Jesus, our bridegroom, was here on earth with his disciples, it was a time for the disciples of feasting. He was right there, imagine. But now he's taken away from his disciples, from us. He says, when that happens, they'll fast. Not they might fast if they ever get around to it. They will. And that's confirmed by the pattern of fasting that emerged as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven. This is looking at Acts. As they were worship- this is after Jesus has ascended, Acts 13 as they were worshiping the Lord and, and what? Fasting. It's gone. Holy Spirit said, set apart from me, Paul and Barnabas and Saul to do the work. Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting. Jesus, we can't do this without your presence. Um, Brandon, I'm gonna skip John 20. Several, uh, several years ago, 2012, I lost, I, many of you lost somebody close to you. I lost someone close to me, a good friend, 2012. And there's, there's some tender words from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. You know that story, that book? And he says, he says C.S. Lewis says this, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Isn't that true? You know what I miss about that friend all these years later? I miss seeing him in other people who knew him, right? This is tender because now they're less people. Like when my wife and me and him were together, he animated my wife in a way that no one else could animate her, right? If you've lost someone, this hard, isn't it? Like you didn't just lose someone, you lost a dimension in another person you love because they no longer get to interact with that person. Do you see what I'm saying? Isn't that, that's only C.S. Lewis could like articulate that. But I feel that deeply. After all these years, and if you've, maybe you've lost a parent or a child, or I, you feel that. Like it's not only, I miss you, man, but I miss you because when the four of us hung out, this person was so much funnier because you could draw them out and now nobody can draw them out like you can, right? Lewis says this then. He brings it home. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself. Where the the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, all of us in heaven someday, check this out, increases the fruition which each has of God. Someday in heaven, your experience of God and my experience of God will collaborate with each other. Every soul seeing Jesus in his or her own way Doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. Holy, 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 holy. Each seeing God in a different way and experiencing him forever. Lewis finishes, the more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have Friends, if we're gonna have more like that with friends, how much more will we have with Jesus himself?
Huh? Feasting, fasting, someday we will never fast again in the presence of Jesus. And so today, friend, listen, the priority in fasting, the promise of the reward is this. It is getting more of Jesus. It is those horizontal priorities that you are praying deliverance from or help with or God, meet this or break through. It is those things. Pray fervently, fast faithfully for them. But ultimately, don't lose sight of the vertical passion we should have to get more of Jesus himself. And we do this making sense of these spiritual disciplines. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the access we have to you through the disciplines you've given us. And this thing of fasting is such a great example of humbling ourselves. Without food, we die. And so to take something that basically sustains us, literally, away to say, I want more of you, Jesus. Lord, I pray, whether it's giving or praying or now fasting, God, we would pursue these things to get more of you. Lord, guard us, guard us from a, a heart that's hypocritical, motives that are wrong. Thank you for Jesus who makes all this possible.